0: Hey again, everyone. I'm Joan Obra.
1: And I'm Ralph Gaston.
0: And you are listening to Catch Me Up to Speed, the podcast that helps you deconstruct the news like a journalist and gives historical context that's missing from the daily grind. So guys, welcome to Filibuster 101, also known as pretty everyday breakfast conversation for Joan and Ralph, because as you probably have figured out by now, uh, we get pretty nerdy in our household, right, Ralph?
1: (laughs) This is true.
0: (laughs) And the rules of the United States Senate make for actually some pretty riveting conversation, you guys, especially with everything going on in the news.
1: Just earlier this month, the Senate Republicans successfully used the filibuster to avoid a vote on a bill that would have created a commission to investigate what happened at the Capitol building on January 6th. But that's just the latest bill to be held up by the filibuster. Six months into Biden's administration... There are a list of bills that currently have no chance to pass the Senate. The For the People Act that centers on election reforms, infrastructure packages, immigration reform, we could go on. And since the January 6th commission vote was followed closely by news networks, there has again been plenty of discussion in the media and consequently in the general public about the filibuster.
0: Yes, indeed. And guys, this is what happens when the filibuster is in the news. We start hearing all sorts of misconceptions about how it actually works in places like Clubhouse or in other um, social media platforms, right? And then we also get requests from friends, family, and podcast listeners to do a show about it. So here we are. So between the two of us, Ralph is the one who follows the rules of both the House and the Senate. And this is actually very convenient for me because, you know, when I'm reading about either chamber out in the living room and I've got a question, I can just yell it out to Ralph, who's, you know, in the office the next next door over instead of having to do a Google search. So this episode kind of gives you that experience, except, you know, I'm not going to be yelling yeah, at you. You won't <laughs> yell on the microphone.
1: And, and yeah, folks, I'm not exactly Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer. I don't want to be Mitch McConnell. But I do know some stuff about how the rules work.
0: Okay, so here's the first question, Ralph, that I keep hearing, or the first series of questions. Why can't the Democrats get anything done? You know, they've got the presidency, they have the majority in the House, um, and they have the majority in the Senate when you count Kamala Harris, right? Because even though she's vice president, she's, you know, also the president of the Senate. So why, why can't they get anything done? Why can't they break the filibuster? Well,
1: as you said, the Senate is technically deadlocked. 50-50. There are 48 Democratic senators and then two independent senators that caucus with the Democrats, those being Bernie Sanders and Angus King. There are 50 Republicans as well. So the tie-breaking vote is the president of the Senate, which is the VP Kamala Harris. So they can pass final legislation with a majority vote. But what the filibuster does is it prevents a bill from getting to the final vote. And to end the filibuster, you have to have three-fifths of the Senate, or 60 votes, to approve ending debate and getting to that final vote. That's called cloture.
0: Okay, so guys, we're going to get Ralph to explain cloture, right? But first, I did want to just address another part of this whole thing, because these are also questions that we're hearing. What about the reconciliation process? We keep hearing about this in the news. Now, isn't this how they passed the COVID-19 relief bill earlier this year? And why can't they just do that again?
1: Okay, yes, it is how they passed the COVID-19 bill earlier this year. But it's not something they can use over and over. Reconciliation is a special parliamentary procedure. It's in the Senate rules. And what it does is allow legislation to pass with a simple majority vote without being subjected to the filibuster but it only applies to budgetary items, revenue, spending, and the federal debt limit. Now, Normally, it's only used once per calendar year, but the Senate could use it again this year for the infrastructure bill since those plans include both revenue and spending measures. As of now, judicial appointments are also not subject to a filibuster, but those aren't covered under reconciliation. We'll explain a bit more about that later on.
0: Okay. So now that we've cleared that up, you guys, I'm going to ask Ralph again, what is cloture? Can you explain this to us?
1: Yes. Sorry, this is going to take a few minutes, folks, because we have to take a trip back in time to look at the origins of the filibuster before we can explain how cloture works. So the term filibuster really wasn't in use in the political sense until the 1840s or so. But the practice of endless debate to kill a bill, well, that's always been around. So from the very first congressional session back in 1789, both the House of Representatives and the Senate had a rule that was called the Previous Question Rule. And basically, it allowed the majority in either chamber to vote on ending debate on any question that was brought to the floor with a simple majority vote. I call for a vote on the previous question. So this is still a rule in the House of Representatives to this day. That's why they don't have filibusters there. But the Senate dropped the previous question rule in 1806 at the urging of the vice president at that time, Aaron Burr. This wasn't done for any nefarious reason. Burr just thought that the Senate had too many rules and no one debated endlessly to kill bills anyway. So this is extraneous. Let's just get rid of it. Why keep a rule that wasn't necessary?
0: Oh boy. Well, you know, that was not a decision that aged well.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think they got that one wrong. And Honestly, they realized it sooner than us here today. It took about 30 years from stripping the rule in the early 1800s before it became apparent how much of a problem this could be. In 1837, the first actual filibuster was used by the Whig Party. They were looking to block a Democratic Party motion to expunge a censure vote that had been taken against then-President Andrew Jackson. Now, by the mid-1800s, the term filibuster was widely in use in politics, and its practice was part of the Senate's rules.
0: So at that time, how did it actually work, Ralph? You actually had to stand there, right, and keep talking and talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. Yes.
1: You'd have to actually filibuster by talking, but there was no way to end it. Right. That was the trick.
0: Right. (laughs) And I'm sure filibustering bills were tried during other eras as well. You know, I'm thinking of Reconstruction Mm -hmm. um, and the rise of the Jim Crow era.
1: Without a doubt. I mean, it was in use particularly to slow down any civil and voting rights bills that were attempted in the late 1800s and into the 1900s was used on other issues. In the 1800s, there were motions brought by both parties in the Senate to eliminate the filibuster and reinstate the previous question rule. But the opposition just filibustered the bill to eliminate the filibuster, so of course it went nowhere, and the filibuster kept being used into the 20th century. So the next big change came in 1917, in the build-up to American involvement in World War I. Senator Robert La Follette of Wisconsin decided he was going to filibuster to oppose the arming of American merchant ships, which was very much in line with his anti-war stance. In response to this, the president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, pushed an effort to change Senate rules and allow what was called a culture vote, which is a vote to limit debate and move potential legislation to a final vote in the Senate. Now, the initial threshold that was set was two-thirds of the Senate, which if you looked at our Senate today with 100 senators, you're talking about 67 votes. In 1975, that threshold for invoking culture was lowered to three-fifths of the Senate, which at that time and today is 60 votes. So that's where we stand right now. You need 60 votes to end debate and go to a final vote.
0: And just so I'm clear, Ralph, I think this is true, that once you set a rule um, in one session of the Senate that rule and any other changes you make they just carry over automatically from one congressional session to the next.
1: Right? Yes, yes, the rules carry over. They become part of what's known as the standing rules of the Senate. There are currently 44 of them and we'll we'll put a link in our show notes to the Senate's rules if you can look at them if you really want to do that to yourself.
0: So, here's the question then. If you if you've, we've just established that you can change rules in the Senate and if this is just a Senate rule, they can just change the rules, right? I mean, this is what Harry Reid did in 2013 when he ended the filibuster for federal judicial nominees below the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Then McConnell in 2017 eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees when he wanted to push through Gorsuch. Yeah. yeah. So this means judges at the federal level at all, you know, now just need to have a, you know, pass a simple majority in the Senate.
1: Yeah, no, this is true. They can change the rules if they want to. And this is what you hear some of the discussion about right now. It does get a little tricky because the most direct way to change a rule is by changing the culture rule. Now, to do that, of course, you have to open the rule change to debate and the vote on the full Senate. And just like in the 1800s, anyone who wants to oppose this change can just filibuster the rules change and nothing happens. Now, the other option, that's the one people are really looking at. What they can do is have a simple majority vote on rules changes. Now, there's a bunch of maneuvers you have to do in the Senate that we won't waste time on here. Basically, there's a way they can set it up to have a simple majority vote on a rules change. This is what Harry Reid did in 2013. This is what McConnell did in 2017. So when you hear senators or politicians or people in the news referring to the nuclear option, this is what they're talking about. But even that needs a majority vote. So for Democrats to use the so-called nuclear option in the current session... They would need all fifty senators that caucus with the Democrats on board. And they don't have that.
0: Yeah, they really don't have that. I mean, this is where the talk about the senators Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona come in.
1: Yeah, exactly. Neither are on board with changing the filibuster rules at the moment. In fact, Joe Manchin just this past weekend came out with a big op-ed that he wrote in his local newspaper, The Charleston American Gazette, Charleston, West Virginia and said I am up against eliminating the filibuster. So they've pointed out, among other things, that Republicans were pressured to eliminate the filibuster in the Trump era, which they were by Trump himself. Um, It was not successful. But that doesn't mean that this is the end of the story or that you can boil down the issue around this just to that simplistic tit for tat.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is is an ongoing issue at this point. I mean, this is a really big problem. We're at a the point where nothing of value is getting done in the Senate, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, you had talked earlier about filibusters being a key weapon against civil rights legislation, but now it's just a weapon that's used to obstruct almost any agenda.
1: Yeah, a- anything at all. I mean, the Dream Act back in 2010 fell one short of a filibuster, breaking a filibuster. Oh, I forgot vote about was that. Was one vote short. I mean, just anything you can think of. It's all getting bottled up. The use of filibusters themselves have gone up exponentially. For example, the longest combined filibuster in American history came in opposition to the 1964 Civil Rights Bill. That was filibustered by the Southern Wall Senators for 60 working days before there was a successful cloture vote. But if you track the actual number of cloture votes by year, you can see how it's gotten out of control. From 1928 to 1970, there were less than 10 cloture votes per year, And there were several years in there, there were no cloture votes at all. But the Senate changed some rules in 1970 that allowed more than one bill to be debated at the same time. They call this tracking. So after that happened, filibustering quickly became a major tactical weapon. By the 1990s, the average was about 72 cloture motions per session. Then during the George W. Bush era, that went to 85 per session. But... That was nothing compared to the Obama presidency when Mitch McConnell truly weaponized the filibuster. In Obama's eight years in office, there were an average of 158 culture motions, including an astonishing 252 motions in the 2013 and 2014 Senate session alone. That was the year that Harry Reid eliminated the filibuster for judicial nominees below the Supreme Court.
0: And to be clear, um, the reason he did that, if I recall, was because McConnell wouldn't let a single one of their judicial nominees through, right?
1: Right. Normally, lower level judicial nominees would be passed through. There are other things like blue sips that we can get into later that it gets in the deep in the Senate minutia. But generally speaking, those would be filled. When Obama won re-election and McConnell was trying to block judicial nominees, he was blocking everything. He wouldn't let any of it through. And it was clearly a political play to try to hold off the judiciary and have some control. So Reid finally used what they called the nuclear option. You know, the new record for cloture motions, by the way, is 328. That happened in the last Senate session, 2019 to 2020, when the Senate Democrats were blocking many portions of the Trump agenda. Now, it's important to understand why there are so many cloture votes, and it is because of the filibuster, both the threat of one and filibusters that are actually enacted. All legislation these days that is brought to the floor of the Senate is moved forward under a cloture vote. In the past, that was not the case, because in the past, a lot of bills weren't filibustered. But now that the filibuster is almost always threatened and sometimes even used... It's become such a weaponized part of Senate operations that you can look at the sheer number of cloture motions and it'll give you a great example of how the upper chamber of Congress has devolved in terms of its ability and its desire to produce and vote on legislation.
0: Yeah. And you guys know we're at a crossroads, right? I mean, we've got some really big decisions to make in this country, both now and in the not so distant future. So the question's just going to keep coming up. What are we going to do about this filibuster? Because the way that the country is so divided right now, it's really hard to imagine either the Democrats or the Republicans gaining 60 senators or getting two sixty senators yeah. in any session in the near future.
1: Right. It seems like if anything major is going to happen, you're going to have to have a filibuster proof majority. Now, the last time that happened was for the democratic party back in 2009, that 60 Senator group included senators in States like Montana. There were two Democrats in North Dakota. There were two Democrats in Arkansas. There were two Democrats in West Virginia Iowa had a Democratic senator, South Dakota, Louisiana, Indiana. Now, at this point, none of these states are very favorable for a Democrat to win a statewide election. And even with all of those senators, it took longtime Republican Senator Arlen Specter to switch parties to become the 60th senator and have a filibuster-proof majority, which they only had for about five months at the time. On the other side, the Republican Party has seen states like Arizona, which is the home of Barry Goldwater and his conservative revolution, and a longtime Republican stronghold. I mean, John McCain, Barry Goldwater, this is Arizona. They have two Democrats in their Senate seats right now. States like New Hampshire and Illinois are much tougher for Republicans to win now. Georgia has two Democratic senators. So if nothing will happen in the Senate without 60 votes, and neither party can get 60 votes, then like we said, what's the answer? Do we get rid of the filibuster altogether? Do we look at lowering the cloture requirement to 55 votes? Do we force the return of the talking filibuster so that these senators have to physically hold court on the floor of the Senate, which would probably tie up all other Senate business for days on end?
0: Oh, Ralph, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Because earlier, you guys remember when we talked about the talking filibuster, but at some point, um, they switched the rules so that you don't have to talk for hours on end to filibuster. Yeah. So how does it work now? You just introduce like a motion or something yeah, like that? You,
1: well, it's not really a motion. What it is is an objection to unanimous consent. So when the bill comes to the floor, there's a vote to move forward with that legislation. And what the Senate is looking for is called unanimous consent, which is as it sounds like, all 100 senators agreeing to allow the bill to move forward for a debate and a final vote. Final votes are always simple majority votes. But this is the point where one senator can object, and then the majority party can begin either setting up a cloture vote to try to break a filibuster, or if they don't think they have the votes to invoke cloture, they'll just move on to other business.
0: Right. And that was, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ralph, but wasn't that the impetus for creating um, uh, an alternative to the talking filibuster? Because when they had the talking filibuster, it was tying up all this time in the Senate, so they couldn't get anything done. Right. But now that they can just introduce a, mu- a motion, they can just kind of, okay, say, we're tabling this, and we're going to move on to other Senate business. Right. right?
1: With a, when you have tracking, you can have Bill A looked at in the morning and Bill B in the afternoon. So if somebody wants to filibuster Bill A and they put it in a motion, then that motion's in, nobody has to talk on the floor and hold floor time, then you go to lunch, come back in the afternoon, and you work on Bill B, and things get done. But at this point, nothing important is getting done. So it, it's it's just not working. I mean, the point of the legislative branch is to legislate, and these folks are not legislating.
0: Right, so I think what I'm hearing you say is that if we brought back the talking filibuster, that maybe it would actually force people to um, maybe not quite filibuster things so much because then we really couldn't get anything done.
1: Yeah, and if they are sitting in the floor of the Senate talking, you can't have Bill A or Bill B or any tracking done. It's just going to tie everything up, and it might bring more attention to the fact that people are filibustering. I mean, the the lynching, anti-lynching act is still held up because of Rand Paul right now. They tried to, I mean, that was filibustered back in the 1920s and 30s. It's still essentially being filibustered now because of one senator. In 2021. And, you know, there's a ton of items that need our attention in this country infrastructure, the effects of racism, systemic racism, climate change, money in politics. We could name some more. None of it can come to a conclusion if the filibuster is going to be weaponized in the way it is to avoid debate and avoid votes on legislation the way it's being used currently. This is something that we're all going to have to figure out. And if the Senate can't do it themselves and it's on the people, to push for and get the change in act that we need.
0: All right, guys. So we also wanted to give you news tips. And the first one is a follow-up on the 2020 election statistics. Remember when we talked about this back in episodes two and three, and we wanted to see how the black vote would turn out for Trump? So now that we're a few months later, uh, and there's more data to look at, it went overwhelmingly against Trump. 90% of black voters went for Joe Biden. But there's a little more nuance coming out now that we're more than six months removed from the election, and the details show more patterns to note for the future.
1: Yeah, 538.com had an article out in early May with some additional details. And as you said, the overall structure is what everyone expected. Trump won the majority of white voters. His biggest support came from non-Hispanic non-college-educated white voters. Biden's biggest margins came from black voters, Asian voters, and Hispanic voters.
0: Yeah, but what's interesting is the slight shifts. A few percentage points in some of these areas closer to Trump. And what the data shows is that ideology was the big dividing line in the voters. So this matches the tone of an era that is very partisan and features a split electorate. So we're going to keep an eye on this trend going into the 2022 elections.
1: And we also wanted to highlight a story that we found earlier this spring that featured Prince Harry, because he is now a prominent member of something called the Aspen Institute Commission on Information Disorder. This is a panel that was created by the Aspen Institute to study what they're saying is disinformation that they see in news media and social media and kind of come up with recommendations to do something about it, in in a sense. Now, I usually have some issues with these types of commissions, and and I'm going to try to explain why here. First, as we usually do, we want to take a look behind the curtain a bit and see who's putting this forward. The Aspen Institute was founded in 1949 by a businessman named Walter Pepke. And what they do is a lot of work focused on leadership in various fields, they're looking to enhance leadership and leadership qualities in politicians, businessmen, businesswomen, educational field, among others. They also seek to be what they call a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues in our society. This is domestic policy. They have a foreign policy shop. They, they do a lot of different things. Um, to give an idea of the people who help fund the Aspen Institute. And this was off of their website, so they're fairly open about their funders. A list of donors from twenty nineteen in the one million dollar donation group include Bloomberg Family Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, JP Morgan Chase, the Ford Foundation, and the US Department of State.
0: Yeah, it's all it's pretty much establishment types.
1: Very establishment type. And this is matched when you look at the backgrounds of the 15 members of the commission. There are 15 of them, including Prince Harry, and there are also three co-chairs. And the three co-chairs are Katie Couric, longtime journalist from Today Show, etc. Color of Change President Rashad Robinson, and Chris Krebs, who is the former director of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Then when you look at the actual list of commissioners other than Prince Harry, it includes people like former Republican Congressman Will Hurd, several members of the academic, business, and corporate media world, including Rupert Murdoch's daughter-in-law, and another former senior member of the intelligence services. Of this group, there's only one independent journalist, Amanda Zamora, of a site called The 19th which is a nonprofit news organization focused on the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. So these are individuals who are very well plugged into the current system of government, media, business, and intelligence. Now, so my concern becomes with only one independent person on this panel, I don't know if they're really well situated to take an internal view at their own ecosystem and the lack of internal accountability that sometimes comes with it. I'd be very concerned that this group is going to come up with another approved media list, similar to the one that we saw with Ad or AllSides.com, which ranks certain media sites on various types of scales. But they also omit more independent sources that may offer a unique perspective or leave some news sources out altogether. Now, this group started meeting in April, so their six-month period has already begun. It'll be interesting to see what they put out as the result of this commission study, which will come out sometime this fall.
0: And you know, guys, this is at a time when independent media is growing in both importance and exposure. So I don't know how many of you guys have been paying attention to Substack. This is a company that allows folks to launch paid newsletters. And there's a growing list of journalists who've gone to Substack to publish independently. So I'm just gonna name a few here. You know, Matt Taibbi, who was with Rolling Stone, Matthew Iglesias, formerly of Vox, um, Casey Newton, who used to cover Silicon Valley for The Verge. All these guys have gone to Substack. And so did Hunter Walker, who used to cover uh, the White House. He was a White House correspondent for Yahoo News. And now he's going to be covering the White House for his own newsletter. Hmm. So he says on his Twitter that this makes him the first indie Substack newsletter in the White House Press Corps. Oh. And this, that's pretty interesting, right? Knowing how establishment-oriented the White House Press Corps is. Oh, yeah. And then there's uh, one more, uh, and this is going to be important going forward. It's the Useful Idiots podcast by Matt Taibbi and Katie Halper. That also left Rolling Stone and joined Substack. So this all ties into what Ralph was talking about with the Ad Fontes chart or allsides.com. Now, if you're relying on those rankings to choose your news sources, you're going to miss some good reporters who are now publishing independently. But that's not the only problem. And to explain more, we're going to take a deeper look at Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty, the latest pair to go independent. Some of you guys may know them from Rising with Crystal and Sagar on The Hill, which is a digital company that publishes political news, you know, primarily from Capitol Hill, hence The Hill. Uh, they just left the Hill to launch a new YouTube show and podcast called Breaking Points with Crystal and Sagar. Now, I bring these guys up because they were spilling the tea last week about why they left the Hill. Yeah. And this was in conversation with Taibbi and Halper on a Useful Idiots episode. And what they said gives you guys a behind-the-scenes look at the ways their corporate bosses tried to control them. And we're going to link to this episode in the show notes so that you can read some of the Useful Idiots analysis along with what we're going to tell you here. So Sagar shared a story about California Congresswoman Maxine Waters. He said on Rising that, quote, Maxine Waters will be the chairwoman of the Financial Services Committee till the day she dies, end quote. So um, if you guys have heard Rising, you know this is primarily analysis, right? So this is basically what he was saying as part of his analysis. And Waters' staff called the big boss, meaning not Crystal and Sagar's boss, but their boss's boss, to complain that Sagar had just issued a death threat on the congresswoman. And Sagar gets this message from The Hill, which is basically that he can't really say these things because Hill reporters need access to Maxine Waters, and they might not get it if he keeps talking like this. Now, Crystal had her own story of The Hill uh, trying to control her voice uh, off air or off their air. Um, she has her own podcast called Crystal, Kyle and Friends with Kyle Kalinsky. Now, Ralph, you want to describe Kyle Kalinsky a bit?
1: Um, Kyle has had a YouTube channel for quite some time, I'd say a decade or more now, and he's done political analysis on there. He's built quite a following as an independent person from the very beginning and brings a lot of uh, cachet, especially being um, in the young progressive space that he is.
0: Yeah, guys, and uh, sorry if we weren't clear earlier, in case you haven't ever seen Rising with Crystal and Sagar, it's basically... Uh, it was basically a show that presented a progressive viewpoint and a conservative viewpoint. And so it did a lot of analysis around daily news from that point of view.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I would say from an independent point of view, because Sager is kind of like a conservative populist is, I think, how he would is the easiest way to describe it. And Crystal comes at it from a progressive populist point of view. So they're just trying to have a, a point of view about news and news analysis outside of a corporate lens.
0: Right. So this is why Crystal Kyle and friends exists, right? Because you've got Crystal and Kyle on the progressive side having their own podcast. All right. So anyway, the point being is that Kyle Kulinski used to be on Rising a lot, but once he and Crystal had this podcast, The Hill said, "Well, Kyle can't be on Rising anymore." You right? Yeah. And The Hill actually said the same thing about Katie Halper. Because she was a regular on Rising. She came on every week, I think. She wasn't allowed to go on to the Crystal Kyle and Friends podcast.
1: Exactly. Yeah, you see how once people started sensing value in the broadcast itself, they got very proprietary about who goes where, what appears where. And, and it, the spaces don't work in the same way that they used to in the 20th century.
0: Yeah, so these were just a couple of reasons um, that Crystal and Sagar pointed out in terms of why they walked away from the Hill. Um, and it's, again, a behind-the-scenes look for all of you guys about some of the controls that happen when you work for corporate media. And all of the stuff, obviously, is happening in ways that are not transparent to the public.
1: Right, and then that, that becomes a big problem. And, you know, the last item that I wanted to highlight was an op-ed that was written by the Washington post Back in March. Now, this op ed was about moves made by Bolivia's newly elected president, Luis Arce. He was the former vice president of Evo Morales. Morales had been president in Bolivia for 12 years and resigned under pressure amid protests surrounding the voting in the 2019 elections, which would have seen him retain the presidency for an unprecedented fourth term. Morales was replaced by a woman named Jeanine Añez, who took the office for two years before losing the recent election to Arce. The post op-ed team criticized Arce for having Añez arrested, along with two other members of her former cabinet. They were accused of fomenting a coup against Morales and against Morales' supporters. It gets a bit convoluted, but after Morales resigned, there were three other politicians in line to succeed him, And all of them refused to take the office, which is why Añez stepped up from the Bolivian Senate and took the office. Now, these people said that they resigned under duress and were threatened, etc. So, needless to say, her brief stint in the presidency was filled with controversy in and of itself. Now, this op-ed, when you look at some of the details I just shared, and that's just a little bit of the story, is an example of what is going to become our fifth news tip. Seek out the news that they don't show you because there's a far more nuanced and complex story to tell about Bolivia's recent political history. And it does tie into the history of the U.S. government's involvement in politics throughout Central and South America, going back to the Monroe Doctrine, really, but definitely in the last century. And that context is missing from the op-ed, but there is a clear call on their part for the Biden administration to get involved. So it's imperative for us to understand more of what's going on in Bolivia and to seek information from sources other than the Washington Post. Because the untold story is usually filled with important information and context. And believe me, that lesson reaches far beyond Bolivia.
0: That's a great setup for our next episode, actually, which you can tell we are already working on. So we're going to end the discussion for today. Well, at least here in the podcast, not at our breakfast table.
1: We'll we'll keep talking
0: ourselves. (laughs) But if you have a question about this episode or any of our past episodes, please do let us know, you guys. Drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com and tell us something like, Hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, or C? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms.
1: And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We want to hear from you, including on Clubhouse. Our Catch Me Up to Speed Club is now active, and we are planning to have discussions there about each episode soon after they're released. So we do want to go there soon to talk about the filibuster. And follow us on Twitter. At catch me up to speed, catch me up the number two speed for the details on when that will take place.
0: And as always, you guys, thanks for spending time with us today. Talk to you again soon.